are in a series going through the Gospel of Luke, which is one of the four uh, accounts that we have of the life of Jesus, of the teaching of Jesus, of the work of Jesus, of really uh, eyewitness testimony on what Jesus came to do and what his message was and what his life was all about. So we are in the fourth week of this, and we've been exploring this together and really just looking at the idea of what is it, what, what would life mean and what would life look like if we really have it with Jesus. And even these little... Uh, you know, I don't know how much you were dissecting this art, but if you just look at even the little pieces, the gradient, that it's just kind of supposed to represent all the different pieces of our life. What does that happen when it meets Jesus? So if you just thought it was cool looking, it's not only cool looking, it means something. And that, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about life with Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we will explore today uh, our passage. So Father, I ask that you would uh, open our hearts and our minds. Help us to hear your voice today. Wherever we are in our faith, wherever we are in Christianity or exploring, or if we've been a Christian for many, many years, or we're just kind of checking church out for the first time, or the first time in a long time maybe, God, I pray that you would speak. You know where we each are. You know what we each need. And so I ask that your word would be clear and that our hearts would be receptive. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Every, every kid wants their parents' affection and approval. Every, every kid wants that. And if you can remember, some of you have kids, but if you can remember back when you were a kid, we all want our parents' affection and their approval. We want them to delight in us, to have joy in us, for them to say, oh, that's awesome, I'm proud of you, or good job. And, and when we're little kids, there's not a lot worth Uh, in us that is actually worth them saying, I'm so proud of you, or this is so awesome, but they do it anyway, which just shows how much, how great they are and how much we love to get that, right? So you draw something and and it's sort of like a weird stick figure monster. And you're like, this is you and your mom or your dad is like, oh, that's so cute and good job. And you're going to be, they lie to you. You're going to be an artist one day and that your parents are always lying to you, whatever you do, because they love you, right? And you love that. You want to receive affection and approval and them to say, good job. We were at the park uh, yesterday with my kids and, and they're on the monkey bars and they're on the, you know, I don't know what sort of monkey bars, like chain things that you go from one to the other. And they're like, watch me, watch me, watch me. Because they want, it's no fun if I'm just over here looking and they're doing it. They want me to see them so that I can say, oh, you're, oh, you're going to be in the Olympics. You know, this is so good. I don't usually lie to my kids. I'm like, yeah, that's decent. That's a good swing, you know. <laughs> got to work on the form a little bit, but no, but they, kids love that, right? You love your parents' affection and approval. And if you are a parent, you love to give that and you love them to delight in it when you give it. And not just when you're a little kid. That's true. Even as adults, even as adults, we, even if you have a a broken relationship with your parents in some way, maybe it's because your parents didn't give you the affection and the approval and the I'm proud of you and good job. Maybe it's because of that and you feel like nothing was ever good enough and you feel like you could never do enough. But even as adults, we love that from our parents, even as adults, sometimes to a fault. I mean, on the positive side, you, if, if, your, if your father calls you and says, man, I'm, I'm really proud of you. Good job. That was a hard decision. Man, I'm really proud of you. That you love that still as an adult. If your mom calls you and, and she, maybe it's when you're having kids or something, and she's, man, I, I love the way you're raising your kids. That stuff, even as an adult, we still love that. 
we still love it. And, and even when you're an adult, sometimes that's what creates some of the biggest problems in marriages or, or that you might experience is one, one kind of spouse wants the parents' approval, so they want to do all the things that they want to do. They want to go on that trip. They want to do it, and it kind of can create tension. Like, why do you always have to make your mom happy? Why do you always have to make your dad happy? Big idea, because we love our parents' affection, our parents' approval. Even if we don't have that, you would recognize that as a source of tension, as a source of pain. Now, all that is to just kind of preface this, that, that we hear in Christianity, we hear that God is a father or that God is a parent. We hear that God is a father that, that invites us into his family, and we want that from God too. We want God's affection. We want God's approval. We want God's delight. We want God to look at the, the drawing of our life or the monkey bars of our life and say, oh, man. That's so great. I love you. I'm proud of you. We want that from God. And if it's, if it's amazing when you get it from a parent, like if the feeling of joy and delight is great when you get it from your earthly father or your earthly mother, how much more so when we get it from our heavenly father? We want that. We want to experience the joy of approval and affection, not just from our earthly parents, but from our heavenly Father, listen, you, even, if you, even if you haven't articulated it like this, you want the experience not just of being a follower of God. Like you might say, yeah, I follow God or I'm, I'm a Jesus follower, but you don't only want the experience of being a follower. Like my kids don't want that. If I was walking with my kids and you said, who are those? I said, These are my followers. You would probably, you would go, uh, that's an interesting way to refer to them. You know, come on followers, let's go. But you, you want them, you want the experience, not just of being a follower of God, but of being a child of God. Now, some of the songs that are the most famous in Christian songs that we sing even are about being a child of God. Like we want that experience. Not just the reality that it's true, but we want that experience. You're a child of your earthly parents, but you don't just want that reality. You want the experience of approval, of affection from an earthly, from a, excuse me, from a heavenly father. We want that. So the question for today is how, how can we experience that? How can we experience the joy of God's approval, of God's affection? How can we experience, how can we experience the joy of that, of being in his family, of being his child? How can we experience the joy of that? How does that happen? Where, where, where does that come from? And so what we're going to look at is this next chapter that really gives to us the offer of being in the family of God, the offer that God extends to us, how we experience that at a beginning level and ongoing, and, and why it is that we even can have access to that. So let's start with this question, which is, what is the offer specifically that is given to us? And wherever you are in your faith, whether you are a Christian or you're exploring Christianity, what's the offer that is Given, And we're going to read into chapter 3 of Luke today. So here's what it says. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. Tetrarch is like a fourth ruler. It was like they split up the kingdom into four parts. His brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Tricot, 
Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. We've already looked at John a little bit. If you are unfamiliar with him, you got to go back in the previous weeks, but he was born and it was prophesied that he would be a prophet, someone preparing the way for God's people. But let me just, I want to just point this out to you really quick for those of you that maybe appreciate this stuff or like this stuff. It's talking about the reign of Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate. And this is Tiberius Caesar, and this is an ancient inscription uh, mentioning, I don't think you can probably, I can't read uh, this language, but Pontius Pilate. And the, the reason I just show you this is to say Luke is rooting this in real history. This is not saying a long time ago in a galaxy far away, there was someone named Obi-Wan or there was, you know, Gandalf. And I mean, it's, these are real historical characters. And so it's not, it's not this fantasy novel. Luke is writing real history saying, hey, there's a guy named Tiberius Caesar, which is a real person that you can look up and there's his statue and there's Pontius Pilate and there's his Latin language that's there on the inscription. It's real stuff. This actually took place in real history. He's not writing fantasy. And at this point, what had happened was that the Jewish people were occupied by the Roman Empire. So they're not experiencing the freedom that they want. They're not experiencing God's kingdom flourishing. That is not what's happening. Rome is ruled by corrupt people. It's ruled by the Romans and it's ruled by Jewish people that were also corrupt. People that became the kings, but they're really just kind of sellouts for the Roman Empire because they were made rich and they were made uh, in power. And so it's this corrupt place and God's people, the Jewish people, Israel, wanted change. They wanted God to come and deliver them. They wanted freedom. They wanted to, they're, they're slaves. And they want to move from slavery to freedom. That is what they desired. And the prophets, as we've looked at the last few weeks, the prophets had spoken of a time that God would come back, that God would come back, deliver his people from their enemies, and move them to experience once again the delight of being in relationship with him, with him as their king, with him as their father. That's what the prophets had spoken of long ago, but it's been really 400 years of silence, of nothing, of slavery, of corruption, of abuse of power, of just kind of even now in them waning hope. If you've been waiting for a long time for something, you know your hope begins to wane. But they were hoping God would come to deliver. And what happens is John comes on the scene and says, it's here. Today's the day. Today's the day you've been waiting for where God has come to deliver his people and bring them into experience delight with him. Now, it's, I, I, I want to kind of set that up for you because it's different for us. Because John is announcing, hey, the day of God's liberation is here. Je the, the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus has come. But for us, that's already happened. Jesus has already come. So it's different for us and yet still very similar. Because what John is announcing is to people that were God's people and yet maybe weren't sure anymore what they believed maybe had waned in conviction, maybe were living lives completely different from what they knew was what God would want, but God's not really showing up. He's not making any difference. 
God's people are here, and the message still comes of here's what God wants for you, here's how you can experience it. So even though we're kind of at a a different place in history where Jesus has already come, the message, the offer of what he brings is still the same. The way that we experience is the same, and how and why we can have it is still the same. So let's look at what he says. So he, John, went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, this is speaking about what John's, really his job description is, a voice of crying out, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. People will be made humble at the coming of the Messiah. The crooked will become straight, the rough ways smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. He then said to the crowds who came, out, who came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What then should we do? Appropriate question. The crowds were asking him. He replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He told them, don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. Some soldiers also questioned him, what should we do? He said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. Now the people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff will be, will be burnt with fire that never goes out. Then, along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, he had had this uh, adulterous, incestuous affair with her, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else, and he locked John up in prison. What is the offer given to us? Now, there's a lot of different things that John says in here, and I want to focus in really on the key of what John is doing and what he says. But let me talk briefly about one piece, and we've already talked about it the previous weeks, which is why I'm not going to talk about it too long. <clears throat> but one of the things it says is that John is proclaiming a baptism of the forgiveness of sins. And we've talked about this idea of forgiveness and the idea of salvation. And if you're, if you're new or you're just, this is the first week you're here and you, you haven't caught up, we spent a bunch of time talking about that. And I would um, tell you to go back and, and listen to some of the other things. But, but let me just briefly touch on forgiveness again. Forgiveness is the idea that no matter what it is in your life, no matter what it is that you've done, no matter where it is that you have sinned in your life, no matter where you have failed in your life. The Bible talks about sin in a lot of different ways. It talks about it as doing things that we shouldn't do. And you know, you know, man, there's things I shouldn't have done that I've done. And the Bible talks about sin as things that we know we should do and we don't do them. And you know those too. 
You know moments that you've missed it. You know opportunities and you've blown it. You know conversations that you totally should have said something, should have loved someone, should have done something, and you didn't do it. That's, I mean, that, the Bible talks about sin in a lot of different images, but those are some of the things. And, and we can all, if we're honest, find ourselves somewhere in there. Now, part of what he is saying to us, part of what the offer given to us is this, that God brings forgiveness into your life, that you can actually receive forgiveness. Now, I've been a pastor for a long time. I've been a Christian for almost my whole life. And forgiveness, and maybe some of you are like that too, that forgiveness can seem like, yeah, yeah, of course, that's, of course that's the message of Jesus. Of course that's what Christianity brings is forgiveness, and Jesus died on the cross for my forgiveness, and yeah, 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 yeah. And it can kind of just seem throwaway. But I've done this long enough to know that for some of you, you still really need to hear that. I was preaching to a church that was primarily people 80s and above uh, a handful of years ago, and one woman who was in her 80s came up to me after I preached a short little sermon on forgiveness, and she said, man, I really need to hear that. And I had, kinda, I had had this sermon already prepared, which is why I delivered it there, um, and I, I kind of was like, man, this is kind of a stupid message for a group of people that have been Christians forever. Everyone already knows about forgiveness, and, and yet she, someone who had been a Christian for many, many years in her 80s, was still saying, I needed to hear about forgiveness today. So for me, even the temptation can kind of be to say, okay, forgiveness, you already know about that. Let's move on from forgiveness. And yet I know that somebody here, I know somebody here today needs to know that one of the things that God offers to us is the removal of your guilt, the removal of your shame, that he forgives that's part of what God wants to bring into your life. But, but what John is really focusing on here is it says, what, what, both what he is doing in action and what the message is, is baptism. It says he is proclaiming a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And then John goes on to talk about baptism, both with fire and the Holy Spirit and all, all this stuff about baptism. And that is what John was famous for doing. That's why people call him John the Baptist. That wasn't his denomination. There wasn't a, a Jose the Lutheran. Also, it was John the Baptist. And what he was doing is baptizing people. He was bringing people into an offer that is encompassed in baptism. And baptism is kind of weird. Even if, for those of you that have been baptized and, or you've seen people baptized or most of us know what baptism is, it's kind of weird if you think about it take somebody and you put them down in the water and you pick them back up and, and then we celebrate that? Like, what, what, why? That's, I take a bath almost every day. I take a shower. No one, cel no one claps when I get out of the shower. You know, maybe sometimes if I stink really bad, my wife might, but that's not like a, a thing. That it's, it's just kind of a weird thing, right? If, if you slow down and think about what, what is this whole baptism thing? What is baptism? And baptism is the message and the offer that was being given. And baptism is a physical act of a spiritual reality. It's a physical act of a spiritual reality. And that spiritual reality is the offer that is given to us, that is vitally important for us to see, to know, to experience. And here's what baptism means, like just the word itself. What baptism means is immersion. If you just look up the, the definition of baptism in the, in the language of, of what it means, it means immersion. 
So you think about the word immersion. That's not a word that we use that often, but there are a couple contexts where we use the word immersion or immersive or something like that. And I think if we kind of look at a couple of those examples, it will get at really what baptism is and why it's such an important offer that is given to us. So here's a couple ways that we use the word immersion today. One of them is around virtual reality, right? And this is just, uh, I'll just read this definition. Immersion, like if you just... Google, type in immersion. This is one of the first things that comes up, or maybe the first thing. It says, immersion into virtual reality is a perception of being physically present in a non-physical world. The perception is created by surrounding the user of the VR system in images, sound, or other stimuli that provide an engrossing total environment. I don't know if you've done any virtual reality or what the quality of that virtual reality is. If you did like one of your at-home Google Cardboard things and you're like, okay, this is weird. Or if you've done something really fancy. We, we did um, like a Disney Star Wars thing in downtown Disney that was amazing. You're, you're a stormtrooper and you're shooting Darth Vader and you get hit by stuff. And, and it's like, I am a stormtrooper. I wanted, you know, it was like amazing. And it was immersion. It was entering into a physical world, even though you weren't there. It was an engrossing total environment. It was surrounding with the best of them can create smells and sights and even physical sensation that you are engrossed in a total environment. That's one of the ways that we think about immersion. Or if you think about language immersion is another popular way that we, probably those are the most common ways that we use the word immersive or immersion is language immersion. Language immersion or simply immersion is a technique used in bilingual language education in which two languages are used for instruction in a variety of topics, including math, science, social studies. If you want to learn a language, one of the ways you can do it is pull out Duolingo or, you know, pull out some old school uh, book and let's say you're trying to learn Spanish and you're looking at the words and you're practicing and you're quizzing yourself and you'll learn it a little bit not to discourage you if that was like your New Year's resolution, you're only going to learn it a little bit. It's not going to go that far. You've probably had the experience of you're on Duolingo or you're st- I used to study on cassette tapes trying to learn different language and then go into an area to speak the language and be like, uh, hello, uh, I don't remember anything. And, and so it, that doesn't work. If you want to learn a language, the best way is immersion. And maybe some of you have had that. Maybe you traveled abroad and you dropped into a place and you, not like you parachuted in, but you, you went there and maybe you did, I don't know. Um, and, you, and you learned the language because you were immersed in it. It came to you because it was everything surrounding you. That is immersion. Both of those ideas, if you think about virtual reality, if you think about language immersion, they both really get to the idea of baptism, which means immersion. And here's the offer that is given. Here's what baptism is. It's an immersive entrance into God. It means to fully experience God. It means to full, like language immersion is I want to fully experience this or even this. I want it to get inside of me. Virtual reality is I don't want to just watch it on the screen. I don't just want to touch buttons and play the game. I want to be in it. I want to be surrounded by it. I want the whole environment to be engrossed in it. And what baptism is, it's saying that is what God offers to you of himself. 
that God wants you to be fully experiencing him. He wants every part of you to be connected to every part of him. He wants us to be united to him. If you think about water baptism, somebody goes under the water and the water covers every part of them. Every single part of them is wet. There's not a dry part of the body. They are fully experiencing H2O. That is what God wants for you. He wants you to fully experience himself. He wants every part of himself to cover us, to touch us, to be united to us so that no part of your life is left untouched. No part of your heart, no part of your mind, no part of your will, no part of your actions is left unaffected and unabsorbed in God. That is the offer that he gives to us. It's so much more than just he wants to teach you, he wants to instruct you, he wants you to follow him. What God wants is for you to be baptized in him, to be immersed in him, to fully experience. Think about who God is. If you think about, man, God is good, God is gracious, God is forgiving, God is merciful, God is compassionate, God's in control. He wants to take all of who he is and immerse you in it. He wants to take all of who he is and have you be connected to it. That is the offer that is given. That is what baptism signified. It's the spiritual reality of what God is saying. Here is what is available to you. Yes, forgiveness, but forgiveness allows us to experience this immersive experience in God. It allows us to be fully united to him. Listen, one of the big ideas that that Christianity or the Bible teaches or that Jesus taught or the apostles taught was not just forgiveness. They spent so much time talking about unification, which means to be united to Jesus. And that is what baptism helps us to see that God is offering to us. And John says that he's doing that now with water. John says, I'm doing that now with water, and and I'm doing this with water, but but Jesus, he doesn't say Jesus, but he says the Messiah is going to come, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, that's, that's to say that this is going to happen at an even greater level. John's saying, I'm doing this with water, and it's kind of signifying this spiritual reality. It's signifying this offer of what God wants to bring you into, but when the Messiah comes, when the Messiah comes, he will baptize you with even more. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, which isn't, it doesn't mean that the immersive experience in God is gone. It means it's intensified and amplified, that it won't just be signified in water, but the Holy Spirit himself, God himself, will come to live in you and dwell in you. That's as immersive as it gets, that God himself will baptize you. You will be indwelt and covered in God that the Holy Spirit will baptize you, which means a greater sense of God's power. It means a greater ability with God's power active in your life. It means spiritual gifting for ministry that God has given to each of us to do. It means a greater sense of God's love as the Holy Spirit says, yes, he loves you. I mean, the Holy Spirit baptizing is God's presence powerfully active in your life. Let me just I, I was going to say, let me stop for a second, but I'm not really stopping because I'm still talking. But let me kind of stop for a second and say this. God wants more for you. What John is testifying is beautiful reality. Would you say of your life, that's my experience. This is the offer that's given. is a fully immersive experience in God. That's what he wants for you. He doesn't want you to settle 
with trying to be a good person. He doesn't want you to settle with coming to church. He doesn't want you to settle with checking the box, Christian. He wants you to be immersed in him. He wants you to be baptized in him and to know all that he is. That's what he wants for us. That's what he wants for you. He doesn't want us to settle in whatever it might be that we settle into. Which, if you think about being fully immersed in all that God is, can be a beautiful thing or a scary thing. If you think about God showing up into your life and being fully immersed in all that he is, that can be, wow, which is kind of what I've been talking about, but it can also be a scary thing. Because all that God is is not just love and grace. God is also just. God is also against sin and wickedness, and to have God fully come into your life is a fire. It's to be baptized in fire, a fire that purifies and cleanses as fire can do, and a fire that burns as well. This is what John says. He says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and then he gives this image of the winnowing fork, which I didn't know what that was. I had to look it up and kind of look at this, but the winnowing fork, I don't know if any of you have ever used a winnowing fork, but a winnowing fork goes into the wheat, goes into the wheat, throws it up in the air, as you can see, it's thrown up into the air, and the good wheat, the real wheat, falls back to the ground because it's dense, and the chaff blows away. It blows away, and then that stuff is burnt up. So that's, it's a way of separating what's good and useful from what's not. And what John says is he uses this image to say, when Jesus, when the Messiah comes, and when he baptizes, he, when God fully immerses, when he comes, that for some people will be this beautiful experience of I'm being gathered in, like he says about the wheat. The wheat, it, it's, God will separate the wheat and the chaff and the wheat he gathers into his barn. And so for some, when the message of Jesus comes, when Jesus himself comes, for some that is an experience of saying, I'm being gathered in, I'm being fully immersed in all that he is. And for some, The same message separates them. The same message divides them. See, the Puritans, some of the early Christian leaders in America, the Puritans used to say that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And it's very similar to what John is saying here. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And for some, that fire is going to be a purifying experience that leads us to know more and more of God's goodness and love and joy. And for some, that will be a judging experience where God fully coming into our life because of our resistance to him, because of our resistance actually leads to us experiencing it as a judging fire. Now, let me just say this because maybe for some of you, that's maybe one of the problems that you have with Christianity is this idea of the fork and the fire and the, and the cutting down of the tree. And you're like, that's, that seems a little judgmental. That seems a little harsh. And I like the peace on earth stuff, but not, not so into the fire stuff. We don't sing a lot of songs about that. And it says about John that he's preaching good news. It says, and with many other exhortations, he continued to preach the good news to the people. You're like, that's good news? It is. It is if you're receiving God's immersive experience of grace, and it is if you're someone that knows that our world needs justice. See, you can't have the just, you can't have the love of God without the justice of God. 
For God to come in and for Jesus to come in and say, part of what I'm doing is gathering people in and part of what I'm doing is separating people out, that might sound really harsh and judging. And it is judging, but it's by a just judge. We long for a world of justice, even if you just look at the passage that we looked at and the types of things of what it would mean that Jesus is going to separate or burn away, the types of things just that this passage talks about are things that all of us would say, yeah, that's, that's bad stuff. I want that stuff to be burned away. Corrupt power, self-righteousness, hypocrisy, adultery, greed, corruption, Abuse of the poor. I mean, these are all things that this, that this passage speaks to. And it says when the Messiah comes, that will be burnt away. We have a God who is fully gracious and fully just. And our experience of him and us being immersed in him can be a purifying one or a judging one, depending on how we respond to it. But the offer is this. What Jesus wants to do is to bring you in. The offer is this, what Jesus wants to do is to baptize you, for you to fully experience all that he is, to be gathered into the barn, to belong to him, to be immersed in him. That's the offer that is given to us. How, how do we get that? How do we experience this offer? How do we experience being fully united to him and brought in? And John is talking, really, there's two different groups of people listening in on, on, the, on the preaching that John is doing. There's two different groups, and yet the response that John calls for, the way that they experience what he's offering, is the same. There's two different groups. The first are kind of religious leaders and religious people that are there listening in. And what John says to them is, you brood of vipers. That's the, that's the first part of his sermon that we get. You brood of vipers. Like if I stood up here and my opening line was, hey, welcome to true life, you brood of vipers, you might not come back ever. Or you might to go, what's he going to say next week? That was crazy. Maybe that is why people kept coming back to listen to John. But that's his opening line. Welcome, you brood of vipers. See, he's speaking to people that are religious, and he calls them a brood of vipers. And he says this to them. It's a very interesting thing. He says, who showed you to flee from the coming wrath? See, they're, they're there, and they're actually saying, okay, I'll, yeah, I'll be baptized. And he says, who, sh who showed you to flee from God's wrath that's coming? And what he is saying here, or what he's implying here, is who showed you that just going through the motions would actually help you escape from God's judgment? Who showed you that just doing these religious things is going, I, I didn't say that, is the answer to the question. The rhetorical question that John is posing is, who showed you to flee from this? I never told you that if you just came and got baptized, if you just did this religious act, if you just went through the ceremony, that you would be safe. I never told you that. And they also say to him, hey, we have, he says, don't, don't say, don't think in your heart, because he knows how the religious people think. He says, don't say in your heart, we have Abraham as our father. See, Abraham was the, the great you know, that God began, gave his covenant promise to Abraham to the starting of the Jewish people, saying that through you a nation would come, that there would be many, many descendants. And so to say that I have Abraham as my father is to say I'm already a part of God's family. Like I've got the right background. Maybe these Gentiles, maybe these people that aren't, you know, uh, converted, maybe these people that aren't Jewish, maybe these people that haven't gone through that experience, maybe they need this repentance and this change. And, but I, I got Abraham as my father. 
the religious mindset is this. The religious mindset then and now is the same, which is to say that there's something about me that is acceptable to God based on what I've done and how I've lived or who I am just inherently. It might be because of your past. You, you probably don't say, hey, I've got Abraham as my father, but we can say, I've been raised in a Christian home. I've always gone to church. I've, I, I've, you know, I've been in Sunday school. I've learned the Bible. We can say that. That's kind of, yeah, that's, I, I've got, I've got the, man, my grandpa was a pastor. Or my great grandpa was a, man, I, I, I have been, I'm an American. <laughs> Whatever it is that we can say, yeah, I, you know, I've, I'm in the right place already. I'm good. The religious mindset is there's something about me, whether it's them saying that Abraham is their father or them thinking doing some sort of ceremonious activity makes them right with God. But he says, who showed you that baptism is going to make everything right for you? Yes, I want you to get baptized, but only if you understand what it's actually doing and what it's actually pointing to, not just to go through the motions. The religious mindset is always, I'm doing certain activity, whatever that is, baptism, Read the Bible, pray, come here on a Sunday, serve, give, whatever it might be. I'm doing these things. Okay, now I'm good with God. I am, listen, our country, as much as we might think that, um, you know, our country is, whatever you think, as much as we might kind of see statistics or whatever and go, oh, people aren't Christians anymore and people are not going to church anymore. And a lot of that is true, but we still as a nation love religion and love spirituality. We love it. I mean, we still sing, we still, there's still prayer at, we went to the stock show a few weeks back and, or a couple weeks back and there's still prayer at, at, and I know that's, you know, a bit cowboyish and redneck, but still there's, there's prayer at the openings of things. And even in our government, there's prayer and there's anytime there's tragedy, there's I'm praying for you and let's take moments of silence. And we sing Christmas songs that are filled with references about Jesus by people that have no clue who he is, but we still love the, the transcendent experience of spirituality, whether it's ceremonies or tragedies or rallies or whatever it is, we still are a people and a nation that actually loves religion because it kind of sprinkles some holy dust on stuff, kind of makes stuff a little more special. And this is really what John is speaking to. If you think that a relationship with God, if you think that, that what God brings you into or offers to you, that you can have it by just going, oh yeah, let's say a prayer about this. Oh yeah, let's, uh, let's sing a quick little song. Let's light a little candle. Let's, you know, let's uh, have a moment of silence. If you think that the offer that God gives to you is accessible, is accessible by going through some sort of motions, even if those are good things like baptism and church, you miss out on it. You actually miss out on what God wants you to have. You miss out on the joy of actually experiencing what he invites you into. I, some of you maybe need to hear this. Some of you maybe need to hear John's words speaking to the people that are religious, that believe because of something you've done, maybe even when you were a kid or maybe even recently, or something that you are, uh, my parents, and I was raised like this, and that that actually brings you into experience all that God is and all that he offers. John says, that's not what it is at all. And if that's what you think it is, you miss out. Is that, is that what your experience of Christianity or faith of Jesus is? It's kind of some ceremonious things you've done, some boxes that you've checked, and so you think, 
okay, I'm experiencing what he offers. What he tells them is they need to repent. That the most religious of us need to repent. And then it says, he speaks, another group that's listening is what we might just not call the religious people, but the typically sinful people that are listening to him. And what he says to them is really the same thing. That they need to repent. See, because the temptation for the religious person is to kind of say, there might be something I need to do. Okay, what do I, I need to go to church. Okay, I need to get baptized. All right, I'll do that. And there we go. I'm good to go. The temptation for maybe the typically sinner person or irreligious person might be to think it's just a private experience that they have. Go, okay, I just need to maybe feel bad and go, yeah, okay, I, I feel bad for what I've done. Or maybe even to pray to God and experience some kind of private experience. But what he speaks to them is very practical. It says that there's several groups that come up to him. There's tax collectors and there's soldiers. And, and these people come up to him and ask, okay, so what do we do? And he doesn't say, just pray and you're good to go. It's between you and God. He says, it makes a difference in your life. If you actually repent, if you actually turn to God, he wants to make a practical difference in your life. That there's very practical things that he wants to change in our life. It's not, repentance is not to take us out of the world in some way and to just kind of be monks or just kind of remove ourselves from the world. And it's to change us in the middle of it. See, if you say, my life belongs to Jesus, that doesn't mean that Jesus says, okay, great. Now you're a pastor or now you're, you're just kind of going to uh, you know, work at a church or you're just going to pray all day. It changes you in the middle of where you are. And he speaks to these groups of people that are tax collectors, soldiers, which for them, I mean, probably none in here are in the same. Maybe some of you are soldiers or work for the IRS, but probably not in the same way that they did. But what he's saying is there's unique temptations that each of our jobs have. You know this. I don't know all of what you do for work, and I don't know all the unique temptations you have, but I know there's unique temptations that each of our career professions have. For tax collectors at that point, they essentially worked for the Roman government, and they would tax the people and then take more. Like, that sounds familiar. Yes. And they would take more to line their pockets. And the soldiers, he talks about for them, hey, don't. Do not abuse people by false accusation. Don't accuse people falsely and don't don't hurt people and don't take more than you're supposed to. There's these particular dangers that each of our professions have. It might be dishonesty. It might be lust. It might be being abusive in some way. It might be being impatient in some way. It might be greed. It might, I mean, all sorts of things. It might be exercising power in a way that's not right. All of our careers have various temptations that we are faced with. And these people come. They hear the message of what, of what John is saying that is offered to them. You can be immersed in God. You can fully experience this. And, John, and they say, okay, we want that. So what do we do? What needs to change in our life? And John immediately begins to pinpoint specific things. Having to do with mainly money, not to be greedy, to share to use our resources generously, having to do with money, having to do with um, um, their work, and even having to do with sexuality later as it refers to Herod. But he's pinpointing specific things. 
And I would just ask you, as you consider, what does it mean to experience the offer that Jesus gives to us? What is it for you if you were listening to John preach, if you were, and, and he says, you, you need to repent, and he pointed out your job, he pointed out your work, what would be the, speci- not just in general, yeah, you know, feel like, okay, God, thanks. What would he point out to you? He gives them specific instructions. What would it be for you? What would be the things that he would point out and say, here's what it means to, to repent and to experience all that God is offering in your life, in your career. He gives to them tangible things to do, to experience. How do we experience the offer of being in, of being brought in, or how do we experience the joy of that for the first time, if you're not a Christian, or on an ongoing basis, where you say, I want to keep experiencing the life that God is giving to me. I want to keep experiencing being baptized in him and fully immersed in him. How, how do we experience that on an ongoing basis? It is repentance, which means to turn fully in our heart towards God and to turn fully in our lives towards God. That's what it means. See, God's not after ritual like religious people might want. He's not after just individual private experience like oftentimes those of us that might feel on the sinful side want. What God is after is to take take our lives and to transform them, to take our hearts and transform them. John uses this image of fruit, and he says there's there's trees that have no fruit on them. And that can be described as the religious people. Religious people have a form that looks like, okay, all the right pieces are there, and yet there's no fruit. This can even be how those of us that are in the the sinner category would find ourselves, is there might be form there. You might say a prayer, or you might kind of express some conviction, but there isn't fruit there. And what he says he wants, what God wants, what John says that he is after and he's trying to create is fruit. And if you think about the image of fruit, it is not just something that's for us. The tree doesn't eat its own fruit. The fruit is used to bless and for people to enjoy, which is what John is calling them to do. He doesn't say just be a better worker. He says share with people, be generous with people, because what God is trying to do is create a community of love and justice where we experience not just individually being immersed in him, but we experience as a community being immersed in all that God is and all that he wants. This is what God wants for each of our lives. God wants you, God wants me to be a fruit tree for our lives to bless others, for our lives to give the joy to others of all that he is. Not just to have private experiences, not just to go through rituals, but for us to bless and serve others so that they experience as we have experienced all that God is. Now, let me give you this last piece. Whoops. Why are we given this offer? Why, why do we get this? Why does this come to us? And here's the, the last section. It says, when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, from God, you are my beloved son, With you, I am well pleased. As he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be, here's the giant list of scrolling through your contacts, but we're going to read it, and was thought to be the son of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathat, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Janai, son of Joseph, 
son of Matthias, son of Amos, son of Nahum, son of Esli, son of Nagai, son of Math, son of <laughs> Matthias, son of uh, Samine, son of Josek, son of Jodah, kind of like Yoda, son of Jonan, son of Risa, son of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, son of Neri, son of Melchi, son of Adi, son of Kosum, son of Elmadam, son of Ur, son of Joshua, son of Eliezer, son of Joram, son of Mathat, son of, whoops, I missed, I did something wrong, son of, I think I read those, uh, son of Malia, son of Mathat, Nathan, son of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, son of Salmon, son of, that's a normal one, son of Nashon, son of Aminadab, son of Ram, son of Hezron, son of Perez, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abram, son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Sarug, son of Reu, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Canaan, son of Arphaxad, sounds like a bug spray, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Malahol, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. If anyone memorizes that, I'll give you $10, okay? <laughs> so, but the important part that it ends with here is son of God. That's the important part. Just when it, when it, when it traces, uh, a Ma- when Matthew traces, gene- uh, traces Jesus' genealogy, he ends it at Abraham because Matthew's point is that Jesus is the descendant from Abraham. He is the true Israelite that is bringing, that is the true faithful Israelite that's faithful to God's promises and family as Israel was supposed to be. That's kind of what his point is. Luke's point is different. He traces it to Adam, son of Adam, son of God, which tells us really what Jesus' role is and tells us why we can experience the offer that we are given because what it's saying is that Jesus is starting a new humanity. What it's saying is just as Adam was the son of God in a unique way because he was directly created by God, that Jesus is the son of God. Born of a virgin, he comes into this world and he's starting, just as Adam originally started but failed, Jesus is starting a new humanity. He's starting a new humanity where he is creating a new family and making and bringing people in to be children of God. And his baptism, his baptism shows he is anointed or kind of commissioned, inaugurated as the Messiah, as the Savior. And Jesus, look, the other people got baptized because they are sinners needing to receive this repentance. Jesus didn't get baptized for that which Luke even makes the point, after, they, after everyone was baptized, then Jesus was baptized, which is to kind of mark a difference. Jesus got baptized not because he was a sinner, but to identify with sinners. Jesus got baptized to say, I, as my life, in identifying with sinful people, which obviously later in his life we will see is what he does on the cross, that he identifies with sinful people to say, count me as one of them, God so that in my life I can forgive them and count me as one of them because what you say of me, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. I will give to them. See, anyone that comes to Jesus, why, why are we given this offer? Here's the offer. The offer is to be brought into God's family, to be fully immersed in all that he is. The way that you get that is through repentance, both initially and in an ongoing way in our life. But why can we have that? is because of Jesus. That Jesus comes and says, I will forgive sinners, I will identify as one of them, and I will give to them what you have said of me. 
Anyone that is united to Jesus, anyone that is connected to Jesus, anyone that has put their trust, their hope, their faith in Jesus, what's true of you is true of him, which is that God says, you are my son and I'm well pleased in you. You are mine and I'm well pleased in you. That's why we can experience the offer because Jesus gives it to us. His affection his approval. So I don't know where you need that. Do you, are, are you experiencing your own kind of shame and guilt and, and sin and you need to know, I can have this because of Jesus. He was a sinner for me. He not, sorry, he was counted as a sinner for me. And through him, I get the gift of God's approval and affection. Or maybe you're suffering in life and you need to know that because of Jesus, God right now says to you, you are my son. I'm well pleased in you. You are mine. You belong to me. I'm well pleased in you. The affection of a father that says, I approve in you. I delight in you. Maybe life is hard. Maybe you're worried. You're experiencing anxiety. So much of that comes because we're unsure of if God's for us, if he loves us, if he delights in us, if he's pleased with us. We're given the offer of an immersive experience in God because of what Jesus has done. We want the joy of a father, the approval of a father. This is how we get it. Imagine knowing that, living in that. When we come and take communion, this is what we remember, that Jesus came into this earth, his body was broken, his blood was shed to forgive sinners, but not just to forgive them, to bring them into the family of God so that we could experience what he did, which is that you are my son in whom I am well pleased. So as we come take communion, remember that. Maybe for the first time, maybe, maybe faith awakened in you and you want that to be true. That's what it means to become a Christian. Or maybe it's just another step to say, yeah, God, I want to repent. I need to repent again and I want to experience again your love and affection. I Let that become more true to you as you take communion and as we sing songs. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you give to us Jesus. God, I pray that even now, Holy Spirit, you would speak the specific areas that you want us to repent in. You know what they are. You know the practical changes that need to be made, whether those are because we come from a religious mindset or we come from just kind of an irreligious, do-our-own-thing mindset, whatever it is, God, point those out and lead every person in here into the repentance that you have for us so that, God, we can experience being immersed in you. Father, I pray that uh, where we need to hear your voice of approval and affection and joy and delight, that you would let that ring loudly in our ears that we would hear, because we're connected with Jesus, that we would hear afresh, we are your children that you love and are well pleased in. Let these truths even now go deeper into our hearts. In your name, Jesus.